Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Tennant. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders and businesses tick. And today's episode is one that myself and Gareth have been promising, uh, to ourselves at least, that we would do for weeks and weeks. And as I cheekily peer over Gareth's shoulder, I can see some notes and what can only be described as a C-based animal on those notes. Now that I've got people going, what the hell are they talking about? Gareth, tonight, what are we talking about? We're talking about starfish and spiders. So starfish and spiders. I've mentioned this before, actually. This is a, a book called The Starfish and the Spider. And the subtitle is The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organisations. And it's by two very, very clever chaps, Ori Braffman and Rod A. Beckstrom. And I'll talk about them in a, in a moment. This book, I first came across it because it was on the Chief of Defence Staff recommended reading list. I thought you were going to say he'd stolen it from his bookcase. That's not that would have been That would have been good. No, I didn't. But it was on his recommended reading list. And I read it about 10 years ago. And the book itself was published in 2006. So it's fairly old now. Can I just ask, that actually surprises me slightly. The Chief of Defence Staff has a reading list. And the reading list includes what you might imagine as modern books on management. I would have imagined it was books on Clausewitz and... Sun Tzu and other fine, upstanding military or closely related military people. What sort of books does it have? Is that a common thing for the chief for the military to have? Yeah, this? yeah, it's very common, and it's common across most most allied nations. The Americans do it a lot, British do it, French do it. Um, I think it's pretty common. Lots of senior commanders, chief of defence staff, chief of the general staff of the army, first sea lord. Uh, Chief of the Air Staff, et cetera, et cetera, will all have their own reading list. And yeah, they tend to be a an eclectic mix of management books, military history books, and things that potentially will get the readers thinking slightly differently about the challenges and problems that the military face. That's fascinating. I've just, uh, you might have heard a tappity tap in the background. I've just Googled uh, Chief of Defence Staff's reading list. Actually, it's come up with the US Army Chief of Staff. Uh, you'll be pleased to know they're all military books. Are they? They are all military books. <laughs> but but actually, but that's, that's interesting. I mean, that's a, a fun exercise I shall go away and do this evening, is actually go have a look at some of those reading lists. And I think we've talked about the, um, and I'm going to get this wrong, and I apologise because we're going to go visit at some point, Centre for Army Leadership. They frequently recommend books. And actually, yeah, for those people yeah. on Twitter, you should go follow them because they regularly uh, share really interesting points. Anyway, sorry, I diverted us. Let's get back to Starfish in the Spider. Oh, that's absolutely fine. So you said it from the cover doesn't have a military ban. It, it doesn't in terms of it's more of a conceptual book about organisations more generally. But there are a few examples in here that are very, very much military examples, as well as lots of non-military examples of both centralised and decentralised organisations. 
And that's primarily what this book is about. It was also picked up by the US military and then latterly by the British military as a book that needs to be read and considered when thinking about the way that we command our organisations. How far does that go down? I mean, does it, obviously, when you talk about chief defence staff, you're, you're talking about senior general level potential left to colonel. But how, how far does this typically push down in the British military? So I've seen the list on posters around barracks and around military establishments. Um, it certainly used to be. I haven't looked at a copy of Soldier magazine in a while, but it used to be uh, a regular feature in, in Soldier magazine, as well as um, other random people across the military's kind of recommended reading. Um, so it it's not necessarily something that everybody is aware of and everybody's reading. It's interesting but how it, far it, does, it is. It does reach out. There's also quite a lot of subgroup discussions. So there's a, a thing called the Wavel Room, which was started by a, a peer of mine from the Parachute Regiment. And that's where people can either anonymously or they can author them explicitly um, and upload essays that they've written on subjects around the military and discuss potentially quite controversial issues, things that they think we're doing wrong, things that we could learn It's interesting about. There's, there's a surprising tradition, I presume, in not just the British military but others. I've heard lots of reference to sort of between the First World War and the Second World War people writing these articles and publications because these these were where people were thinking about what the next war might look like yeah some of whom were radically wrong and some of them um i remember uh, general hobart latterly general hobart as an example of someone who actually was very right in terms of what would happen so i i hadn't realized there are institutions to do that today and of course as always i think huh What's the equivalent institution in business? Mm. Very, very rarely, partly because, okay, if you've got time to write a positioning paper, why aren't you doing your job? I think to some degree is the assumption. But actually, it's interesting. There's no there's no mechanism or framework typically in organisations to do that. Yeah, I think the military has a recognition that it is always preparing for a future challenge and therefore it can't always rely on its experience. So there is a natural built-in cultural norm about needing to understand technology, societal change, new ways of thinking about management and organisations. But I, I also counter it with this is also because it has such strong hierarchies and command systems and we do rigidly sort of stick to and we've talked about this you know rigidly stick to drills and doctrine and so i think this is part of the process of being because we're culturally quite tight quite centralized and it's difficult to change this is part of the cultural process, process of enable enabling some of that agility and we're going to get into that because that's exactly what this book is all about so the Starfish and the Spider, the unstoppable power of leaderless organisations. And the, the idea behind this is if you think of those two creatures, a starfish and a spider, they don't look dissimilar on first appearance. They are 
kind of round blobby thing with legs protruding out from a central point. But that's where the similarity stops. And this is an analogy for organisations. If you cut the leg off a spider, what happens? Presumably he limps and doesn't go very far. Exactly. You end up with a slightly less effective spider who's probably a bit grumpy. Was that the right answer? That was exactly the right answer. I'm sorry that there was an answer I should have known about. If you take more than the leg off and you take a bit of the thorax or a bit of the head, eventually you're going to take so much of the spider that it dies dies. and the rest of it becomes fairly useless. With a starfish, if you cut the leg off a starfish... A starfish regrows another leg. And I think that's common to almost all species of starfish. There is a particular starfish, and I don't know the name of it, and I should have prepared you better. You're be called out. You're yeah, be called absolutely. out for this, your lack of starfish knowledge. Which is the blue starfish on the front page of the book. So Google the starfish and the spider, and then Google what type of starfish it is. But that starfish, if you cut one of its legs off, not only does the starfish grow a leg back, but the leg grows a starfish. And you end up with two of the same starfish. That's very exciting. Isn't it? And actually, sometimes when the conditions are such that it needs to do it, it will deliberately tear itself apart to reproduce rather than reproduce in the normal way a starfish does. You can tell I'm not a... You're not a starfish. I'm not a biologist. I'm not an expert. These are analogies for the way that organisations manage themselves. Centralised organisations represented by the spider, decentralised organisations represented by the starfish. So a spider organisation will have a hierarchical command and control structure, and therefore there will be the head of the organisation, typically the CEO. A starfish is a decentralised network that doesn't have a commander-in-chief or a CEO. There is no head to the organisation. The book goes through lots and lots of examples. Um, I'm only going to pick on a couple here, but one of the examples is Alcoholic Anonymous is a starfish organisation. It is a franchise, one imagines, then. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm doing it down by step, but franchise in the sense of it is not one group of people saying, this is what you will do. It is a loosely coupled group of people that follow the same generic direction, possibly with help from one another. Well, there is no direction because there is no corporate head of the organisation. So Alcoholic Anonymous is a system that works that is adopted by groups worldwide. And the groups self-support, and it is a self-learning organisation. So as they develop new techniques or as societal norms change in the way that perhaps people need to be communicated with changes so do the the system that they employ and the the way that they so presumably presumably theoretically at least different branches of alcoholics anonymous might have very different ways of approaching things because they don't follow a single path necessarily so there is a standardized way of doing things that has been learned through best practice and communicated across the organization so I don't have any experience of going to an Alcoholics Anonymous group. And, and my my knowledge of some alcoholics who've talked to me about it is, is very limited. But I suspect if you went to one group, it would feel quite different yeah. to another. But there would be things that if you walked into not your regular Alcoholics Anonymous, I can't say it, Alcoholics Anonymous group, 
I think we're going to call it Alcoholics <laughs> Anomalous. And then that would probably... Yeah, yeah. There would be things you recognise straight away. And it would feel like just a different group of the same organisation. Another quite interesting, almost starfish organisation, is Wikipedia. So Wikipedia is a self-healing system because there isn't a curator who allows content. There are many curators. There are many volunteers who who curate content, Um, as opposed to an encyclopedia, which is published, having been edited, having been curated, the single version of the truth. What's really interesting is, for anybody that's listening that's recently gone through an academic course, either a short university course or, or whatever, you will almost certainly have been told by your academic advisor that you're not allowed to reference Wikipedia because that's seen as kind of cheating and it's seen as not, not a very... It's not a quality source. It's not a quality source. Ironically, there was an academic study and it's one of these sort of meta studies where they take a body of knowledge. There was an academic study of the material on Wikipedia and the material in the body of published academic knowledge in journals and books. And guess which one is more accurate? You're going to say it's Wikipedia, aren't you? It's Wikipedia. And the reason for that is twofold. One, the the vast volume of information that we're dealing with, it's almost impossible for a single centralised system the academic process. And I, I accept that there are more than one academic institutions and therefore there is more than one BIDER organisation doing it, but there is always a centralised curation, editing, checking process. It's very, very difficult for them to check all the sources, to be experts in every single field and to go through the rigorous process such that everything that gets printed in a journal is accurate, yeah. is up to date, etc. It also takes a hell of a long time. And so by the time stuff is published, it's probably already out of date. I was say speed of change. The difference with Wikipedia, of course, is you've got this community of interest where things are constantly being updated, they're constantly being checked, they're constantly being accredited and assured. And so whilst you should never go and take a single Wikipedia page entry and just believe it, you should probably never take an academic essay or an On academic paper from a journal and believe it. You should you know, corroborate sources and reference properly. The thing is, with Wikipedia, I could have updated something 10 minutes ago and it could be absolute bullshit. Yeah, yeah. But if I did, it wouldn't be long before somebody else came along and it's swept it up. Yeah. So, I, I, so I'm the useful idiot for this episode because I've not come across this concept before. And feel free to tell me to be quiet if I'm sort of getting ahead of the game here. But one of the things that occurs to me is as you've described certainly the starfish organisations or types of organisations. Is there an implication that the starfish and the spider model, and I'm going to be very down, I'm going to walk into your trap here, suit different kinds of organisations? No, I think you're right. I don't think you've walked into a trap at all. I think it would be reckless to say... Spiders are bad, over-centralised organisations are bad, everything should be decentralised. Of course, if you decentralise completely, then you end up with chaos. You end up with no guiding principles. You end up with just 
random random or, or chaotic behaviors and one of the key points that they bring out in the book is that actually the tendency to centralize should be pushed back again and we should aim to decentralize more but only to find a balance and a hybrid organization that is decentralized enough that it allows for agility and it allows for adaptability is better than a centralized organization and it's better than a fully decentralized organization and the classic example that they talk about in the book is the music industry if you think back to late 1990s when we used to buy music as cds it was very expensive you bought a cd which was either an album or a, or a single with a few tracks on it the chances are that was produced by one of the big four record labels now there were lots and lots of independent little record labels but they made up a tiny percentage of the market and there were four and i can't remember what they are well, the top of my EMI, head. emi that's it universal universal yeah, there, EMI. there's another two. <laughs> but there were four that owned something like 95% of the market. And, and that's how you bought music. And that was a very centralised model. And to be successful in the music industry as an artist, you had to be found by an A&R man. You had to be promoted. You had to... To get there was difficult. It's a bit like we're finding with podcasting. There's an awful lot of podcasts, but there's very, very few... That, that have a significant number of listeners and you know, it can exponential growth curve. It's very, very difficult to be successful. And it was. The four incumbent record labels captured the market and therefore they dictated the terms. And then suddenly what was happening was there were sharing websites like BearShare, Napster, Grokster, Pirate Bay, there were loads of them. And the reason there were loads of them is because they kept getting shut down and they kept getting legal bills because the big four were going after them because they were you know, cheating. Those organisations were the decentralised starfish. And the problem was for the, the centralised record labels was no matter how much money they threw at legal battles they always came back there was always yeah every time you killed one bit of that organization it would just refurbish like a starfish else. leg like a starfish leg but actually the organizations that won in the battle of the music industry weren't the napster and the pirate bays and it certainly wasn't the universals and the emis it was apple music spotify amazon music now deezer whatever because they are decentralized enough that people can upload their own music. You can download music and pay for it as you need to and as you feel that you should, and you can now subscription services and all the rest of it. So it's decentralized enough that they can manage the, the change and they can manage the vast amount of music that is being created, but it's centralized enough that they make money, that there is an organized system. And so it's that balance. I don't know whether this is the right analogy but it certainly struck me over the years. So something in business that lots of organizations have struggled with, particularly in the world of software, is we build the software, our clients buy the software. We build the software, our clients buy the software. But there's a point at which you can't build all the software that your clients want you to build. And so therefore building up a partner community 
is a really useful thing to do. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it feels to me like that might be a good example of a hybrid, which says our partners can change and evolve and give people what they want, but we are the centralized with a platform they have to plug into. And it is a mutually supporting network. And for lots of businesses where all they've ever known is we build it, we sell it. That's a frightening thing. And they say, well, we don't want anyone else to build the software that our customers use. But actually, when you get to a certain scale and if you do it right, it's an accelerator rather than something that yeah. stops you. But I, I like that idea of these partners become the starfish piece of it that says this year we customers want this thing next year. They want that thing and they can be more agile potentially in a, uh, a sort of a more where the, the core business wants a bit more sort of predictability and, and goes down a specific direction. Yeah, I think the software industry is a really interesting example where because of the internet and the internet is a decentralized starfish system, people can join it, people can do things on it, people can change bits of it as they see fit without any real oversight or control. And the software industry is massively, by nature, distributed, and the internet is the medium with which they operate. Well, there's a, there's another really good example, and I'll, I'll do this briefly because I want to get back to sort of what it means for us and how, how do you get there and all these kinds of good things. But there's a really, really good example in the software world, which is called the open source software world. Yes. So, And I would be staggered if they didn't refer to this in some form. And the, the open source software world talks about creating pieces of code that anyone can use and not just bits of software but entire pieces of software so i worked for a company once that had an open source content management system and anyone could download the source code and take the source code many people were invited to contribute to the core source code and the people who as it were own that but what you found was people would what they call fork the source code and someone else would build, effectively, it's the leg of the starfish coming off yes. and carrying on. And that, that I think, is a very apt for the software world description of this whole starfish yes. versus spider. And I think I think there's, a, there's two reasons for that. One is there is a lot of people that work in the software industry that understand the value of these decentralized networks. And um, some of them have had to learn the hard way. Classic example is, is Microsoft that went from being a, we produce software and we sell it, and we own the market and therefore you know we have that economy of scale to oh my god that doesn't work anymore because of the internet but the second thing is by its nature software can be recreated so and i've i've been learning about ip and copyright quite recently for a, a piece of work that i'm doing you can't protect what a what a piece of software does so I could protect. go and write an email client yes. that behaves and has functionality that is similar yes. to Microsoft. So you can protect the code, but all it takes is somebody to go, that's a great idea, but you're charging an awful lot of money for it. So I'm going to make something that does something similar for free and I'm I, going to distribute I it. I think patents are an exception for that. Patents are very different. So if you have yeah. an original idea and someone recreates that original idea. So, but... And, and this is where, if you think about the classic you know, legal suits between Apple and Samsung, you can't patent the product, you have to patent the idea. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, on an iPhone, for example, every feature of an iPhone has to have a patent. 
that becomes extremely prohibitive and expensive and difficult to because you've also then got to prove other people are bringing well, and, that and you play all sorts of games where Google has a load of patents and it says, if you can let me use yours, you can use mine. By the way, nerd fact of the day, yeah, I have a patent. Gee. I do have a patent, exactly. which is quite remarkable. I have a little um, framed thing which talks about what my patent is. When I worked at Adobe uh, and I worked on a team and we talked about how you might link pieces of text between documents. Amazing. So it is quite actually it's it's quite amazing because it's you you are now in the patent registry for that anyway let's get back to starfish yeah. and spiders protecting your your ip and all of that can be quite quickly undone in the software world but also there are reasons why empowering the wider network including your customer base will make life easier for you make life easier for your customers make the community grow and the, there's a really good example, really tangible example of this, and that's eBay. So before eBay came along, there was a, another platform, and I can't even remember what it was called because it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work was they they said, right, this internet thing's here. There's a massive opportunity for people to buy and sell stuff across the world. So what we'll do is we'll let people list stuff, and then we'll match them up with, people who want to buy stuff and the fellows and the buyers will be the middlemen. Brilliant. But in a world where the internet's quite new and we haven't really learned about starfish organizations yet, the default is, well, there's a trust issue here. So what we're going to have to do is people are going to have to list stuff. We'll match them up with the people who buy it and then we'll get them to send the product. We'll check that the product is what they said they were going to provide and then we'll post it onto the buyer. Well, that creates a huge amount of and cost. administration and cost. And, and you haven't solved the trust problem. All you've done is migrated it because you have to trust this organization. So whilst it's easier perhaps to trust a brand and an organization than it is a random person, the answer to it was quite simple. The answer was have ratings, have reviews, have feedback. And that's what allowed eBay to be the dominant buy-sell website. And we've seen those kind of features and attributes on, on community software. They're just standard now. Rating, feedback, reviews are just how we build trust between third parties using a, a piece of software, whether it's booking a hotel or whether it's buying a car or whatever. So we've... I think we've identified and talked about different organisations. Let's take a quick break. But when we get back, I'm going to ask the question on everyone's lips. So what? What is it we can actually learn out of this as opposed to simply identifying we are one of these or one of those? So I'll tell you what, we'll join you straight after the break. Welcome back. I think this is another of those classic things where this concept of starfish and spider is a way of revealing a new way to think about something you've seen every day. We talked about eBay, which I think is a really good example of this decentralized. If one seller stops selling, that doesn't stop eBay because there's a million other sellers. And so it's sort of self-healing. 
But the, the question I posed to Gareth just before we went away is, so what? You know, we've either identified we're a, a starfish or a spider or some kind of hybrid of the two. So what? What does that mean? What can we learn? What should we be trying for? Yeah, it, it's a great question because I think I think everybody can probably get their head around the, the, the difference and, and see some of the benefits either way. We don't want chaos. We don't want over-centralisation such that we become rigid. We've talked a lot in the past about the ability to be agile, the ability to innovate, the ability to evolve to a changing situation around you. And that's ultimately what this is all about. A lot of the times, there isn't a choice. If you don't decentralise because of the pace of change, because of the opportunities that you're providing by not changing to external competition, you're going to be undermined based on your over-centralisation. And this is why, like I said earlier, that this book isn't specifically military, but this is why the military really picked up on this book and it became top of chief defence staff reading list. Are we sneaking back towards Mission Command? Well, Mission Command is mentioned got a lot in it and they take some of the lessons from the way that Western militaries do their business. Yes, there are there are definite overlaps, but I think this is more about the structure of the organization. To an effective decentralized organization, you need to have mutual trust, you need to be able to delegate authority. So mission command definitely comes into it, especially if you're transitioning from a centralized to a decentralized mm. organization. But I think perhaps a starker example of the difference from a military context, is if you look at a counterinsurgency force versus an insurgent force. An insurgency is where you have a threat force that are hidden amongst the population and they don't fight through the centralised rules of professional military. If you defeat one, you have not, by definition, defeated the rest. Absolutely. And Al-Qaeda, this book was written in 2006, the war on terror was so probably it, an was, I was going to say, is so correct me here or, or lead me down a, a different path. It feels to me like from a business perspective, you're kind of either a starfish or a spider or a hybrid. And while you wish to be more starfishy, your business is your business. The reason why eBay works is because it has a large constituency. It's, it's inherent in the model. How can I go and apply that to my business or how can the listeners apply the business? Like, the example of the insurgency is actually a very powerful way of describing a system. And by its definition, now it's useful to me. Yeah. So to say your business is starfish or your business is, a, yeah, okay, let's talk a bit about that. Yeah. But to say that insurgency is like a starfish, it immediately changes your, we're not looking to kill the one person or stop the one person, we actually have to think differently about how we defeat this. So yeah. where, where is the angle of the book? Is it more at that sort of uh, enterprise commercial business level, or is it a more conceptual idea that helps you think about specific kinds of problems, in this case, for yeah. example, insurgency? It's definitely uh, that conceptual, the way we think about systems. So the book covers what you do when you're taking on 
decentralized organizations. So if you are centralized, if you are the US Army and you are taking on Al-Qaeda, yeah. what do you do? It also talks about the value of decentralization externally. We've talked about a few commercial examples of bringing your customers into your community. eBay being an example, Wikipedia, partners in the software world. But it also talks about the value of decentralization in changing behaviors. And this is common in the current zeitgeist around being agile. Nobody, no organization has ever become agile by doing a two-week course. Agile is like to say, there's going to be a lot of people, in fact, we know someone who listens to this podcast, who right now listens to this podcast, apparently in a car, on long-distance journeys to and from work, who will right now have pulled over and been banging his head on the steering wheel. That's for you, James, by the way. That's not to say doing a course on Agile is a waste of time. Of course it's not. But... Agile it's, it's is a, a cultural it's a thing. way of thinking and it's, it's a, a way it's of a thing you have to practice and so it's not an individual thing it's a collective organizational thing and that's what this book is all about it's about the system of decentralization and there's a really really good example there's a hospital and I, I don't think this is actually in the book but this is something that Ori Brafman has subsequently talked about and used as a really good example there was a hospital where they were struggling, like all hospitals, with infections. Biggest killer in hospitals, infections. Got to wash your hands. Simple. We all know the answer. So what do they do? Put up posters. Say, wash your hands. They explain to medical staff that if they don't wash their hands, they're going to carry infection. So they teach everybody how to wash their hands properly. They start bringing in punishments when people don't do it very spidery very spidery the same hospital a janitor cleaner in this hospital notices that the infection rate in one particular ward is higher than other bits of the hospital so really really good to see that somebody who isn't part of the administration of the hospital has access to that information that he he now understood that there's a bigger problem in this ward where he's cleaning than other bits of the ward and so he goes and investigates and part of his job is also to replenish ppe and stuff and he realizes that people aren't using ppe in this ward and he says why you know i'm every other ward i'm putting boxes of gloves out and it turns out there were more females on this ward than other wards. And I don't know why, but there'll be some reason why female nurses were... Less inclined to wear the less in, Yeah, well, the reason was they had smaller hands. And the gloves didn't fit. And this hospital had made a decision to cost savings to buy one good. size of gloves. So he went back to the administration and said, in this ward... The nurses aren't wearing the BBE because it doesn't fit. So buy small sized gloves and put them out on that ward. So they did, and the infection rates dropped. So then they decided they were going to provide, and it, they, the cost benefit analysis had already been done for them. It was worth the extra cost of having multiple sizes of PPE across the hospital. And all of a sudden, the rates of infection. And they're all money saved, et cetera, et cetera. And the point here is rules aren't as good as norms behavioral norms are how you get change so a really good example driving 
we all speed, don't we? Unless there's a police car around or a speed camera. I'd like because to make we... it clear as we're recording this, I don't speed. <laughs> we all do it. It's a behavioural thing. We all do it. And unless there's a police car around or you know there's a speed camera, at which point we change our behaviours because of the involvement yeah. of the rules. The people who've been involved in an accident, suffered loss, have had near misses or have been on a speed awareness course and have been taught speeding isn't necessarily the problem. Speeding is the exacerbator to whatever else is happening. If you're speeding, you can't respond to somebody else who's driving badly or walks out in the middle of the road. Suddenly, there's a behavioural imperative not to speed. It's a, it's, I don't want to speed because I want to do the right thing. Not, I don't want to speak because I don't want to get caught. Yeah. It's about norms. Norms are better than rules. So th this is to, to, to sort of reinterpret this. We started by talking about using this model as a way to describe a system you're observing. And actually, we've now flipped it on its head and say, here is a strategy for you to deal with variable situations. So I think a different way of saying that is, when you see problems, you should not assume the same solution will solve all the instances of that problem, yes. which I live through every day. And this is a terrible crime. Even people who know me today and, and know what I do today, as a leader of a, of a product organization with an engineering colleague, when we talk about our organization, most of the time and when we're not on our game, we treat the organization as a homogenous commonly behaving way which of course in the parallel of gloves is not true there are some teams that generate more bugs there are some teams that have more reliable output and the answer to that is we need to sit with each and every team and take the time and say in fact well i was going to say take the time and say let's talk about how you work as a team but actually even better to your analogy have the equivalent of the janitor in a self-organizing team say, mm, that's interesting. I think we've got more bugs than we should have. Yeah. How are we going to solve that? And we can look, we can look outside to other norms and examples, but fundamentally the solution for team A almost always isn't the same as the solution for team B. No. And and that's yeah, it's really important. The lesson in that hospital story isn't, well, they should have had different size gloves because of course there's different people in the organization. The lesson is, firstly, norms, not rules. And secondly, the power of giving the janitor information about the challenge and the problem allowed somebody who has a different perspective to be able to connect the dots together. And a, a decentralised organisation, for every new member, you increase the value of every preceding member because they're sharing information. Because there's no centralization for which the filters of information become, as we've talked about before, you know, information is power, it gets held in the hierarchies, you know, stuff that's on the shop floor isn't relevant because, you know, people in the C-suite think that they are the decision makers, they don't understand the reality of what's happening. And so you end up with these very rigid structures that can't innovate and change quickly. When I hear that, that suggests to me that people are missing this element of we are empowering you to control 
a significant part of your own destiny. Yeah. There is a there are a group of things that are in your power that only you can see and that either you can solve yourselves or you can come to people like me and say, hey, we've got a problem that you need to solve. And it is surprisingly common for people not to do that. So your example with the janitor and the gloves, in a sense, that's sort of pretty close to, I did a retro. It turns out we get more people with you know illnesses in our ward. We should talk about why that is. Yeah. Oh, you don't use PPE. Well, let's talk about why you don't use PPE. Oh, the gloves are the wrong size. We can talk to someone about that, as opposed to the guy who just says, yeah, this is a terrible ward. Yeah. And you've seen the infection rates. They must be bad nurses. <laughs> and, and you see this very frequently. As with every single episode we do, these things touch on one another is the empowerment, the, the sort of the, the self-organizing teams, the agility. It becomes really, really valued. I want to go back, though, just because you you have some really interesting experience. I, I, I get to do the, forgive me, people in my business, the nerdy stuff. You get to the interesting stuff. You gave an example, which I thought was a really, for me at least, an excellent example of these the two kinds of organizations and you said an insurgency is a starfish and typically a military is a spider but then you said but the book then talks about how do spiders deal with starfish and one imagines how do starfish deal with spiders what did they say because i think i'm fascinated about what they said i mean this particular example we know in modern warfare there have been an enormous number of insurgencies, whether you start in Vietnam, whether you go on to Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, you know, you've even got this now in Ukraine. What? So what did they say? There are three things when you're faced with a challenger, a competitor, an adversary that is more decentralised than you are. The first one is change their ideology. So... The, the first insurgency, they talk a lot about the US military and Al-Qaeda, but they also talk about the Spanish and the indigenous natives of North and Central America. The Spanish had real problems with fighting the indigenous population. Now, this is not a judgment on you know colonial history. It is just the reality of what happened. But the Spanish would find that they would overwhelm through use of force, manpower, technology and firearms, and experience, I guess, the indigenous fighting forces. But what would happen is they would kill the local chief and expect everybody else to be compliant. What would actually happen is they'd run off into the hills and then as smaller groups, they would establish their new chief. And then there were four or five different now communities that were hidden out in the hills rather than one village. And... It was a bit like you know, hitting jelly with a hammer. They were just spreading the jelly out. And it didn't seem to matter how much stronger they were. These forces were spreading themselves out. That They were causing their own problem. Yeah. They were making things worse. And it's, it's classic insurgency. You know, it's pitching your, your strength as an amorphous, non-hierarchical organisation against the hierarchy of... You know, what was the, you know, the Spanish conquistadors? It turned out that the way that the US, who inherited this problem, dealt with it was not to take them on with lethal force. This is Al Qaeda, not the. No, this is still the, 
the indigenous populations was to change their ideology. So what they did was, I think more by accident than deliberate strategy, but they introduced them to alcohol, they introduced them to gambling, and they introduced them to money. And suddenly the ideology of the insurgent starfish organizations started to resemble the ideologies of the more centralized American organizations. So it all worked out in the end. And that's how eventually they brought on side some of the some of the indigenous and they were people and whilst they were diminishing. So kind of then. I mean this so, I know we're, we're yeah, separate. It's, it's an interesting so this is where we talk about wider character insurgency doctrine and, and, and tactics. And there are lots of books on it and that's not what this episode is about. But effectively what you want to try and do is is take away the power that that insurgency has. And in Al-Qaeda, the power they have over the population is the religious authority. So linking Al-Zawahiri's sort of ideas taken from the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Zawahiri was the second in command, and then when Osama bin Laden was killed, was, became the commander, until he was killed in uh, Kabul last year, I think. Um, but he was always the ideological brains behind the organization what you do is you you take that away you highlight the inconsistencies and the corruption and the the, you, the you, confliction you provide an alternative yeah that is better than the existing one yeah as well as recognizing that there's far more to you know what al-qaeda provides than just religious authority so you want to provide you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You want to provide shelter and security and yeah. stability, the ability for people to operate in the, the way that they want to have freedom in their lives. So if you can do that, if you can change the ideology, you can catalyze the Starfish organization. And that is, they start acting as advocates on your behalf. Well, they you're making them more spider-like as well. To There's a little bit of that. I think more... What you're doing is you're you're removing the rather than the organizational structure, you're removing the thing that makes them antagonistic to you. So one of the big things about counterinsurgency is it's mostly not a military job. Well, the military is hearts and minds. Absolutely. So what the military needs to be able to do is provide the security from which other organizations can then start to build rule of law, commerce and allow people to live the lives that they want to live. And like I said, this isn't, you know, a, a podcast about counterinsurgency, and, and there's you know, lots of examples of it being done badly, and there's some examples of it being done well. But you don't, you don't take the force on with what they're strong at, which is evading your centralised power. Uh, and the, the third, third aspect is, if you can't beat them, join them. Decentralise yourself. And I've talked before about Stan McChrystal doing this with US SOCOM. So what they did was they realised that this very centralised organisation that was designed to do high-risk, very limited counter-terrorism operations, a la, you know, 1972, Munich Olympics, PLO kind of things, or... Door-knocking, blow things yeah, go in, Iranian go embassy out. siege, 1980, or recovery of weapons of mass destruction, 
when they've got lost or whatever. So very specific task, very, very high risk, very large centralized organization with a very, very finite tip of the spear being these special forces teams. That's not how you fight a counterinsurgency. So what Stan McChrystal did was he decentralized the organization. He gave decision-making authority to the small teams. He embedded the intelligence teams with the strike teams. So rather than central intelligence, the intelligence is now down at the edge of the organization. He allowed them far greater freedom of decision-making and all the things we've we previously talked about. It's a very, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know people can hear I'm sort of interested in these military examples, but we the constant echoes. This sounds very Amazon-like. Yeah. And this was something that that over the years I've been somewhat frustrated by, and I I oscillate between deciding whether this is a good or a bad thing. So what's interesting is what you'll find lots of large software companies, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, historically became successful through one or two particular activities and Adobe, of course, that I worked for. So Acrobat and Photoshop people think about. But over time, those businesses need to find the next, yeah. the next Photoshop, the next Acrobat. So Microsoft is a classic example. And of course, um, Amazon that sold books, we need to do something other than selling books. And so what I found was that um, particularly Google, and this was back in, you know, just maybe 2000s, 2004, 2005, you would look particularly at Google, uh, but then Amazon did this, they would waste enormous sums of money. And for me, it felt like they were, they were playing darts and a hundred people would throw darts at a dartboard and one person would hit a bullseye and everyone would cheer. But there were 99 darts that missed and those were very expensive darts. But in a sense... I think what they were doing, whether consciously or not, and I think they were very conscious, was they were decentralizing. They were saying, we are going to seed a thousand small businesses, knowing that 995 will fail, and that's fine. But five will not be constrained by how we run ourselves as a business, or at least in the generic way. They're not going to make a version of the book selling. They can go invent something entirely different like this this idea that we're going to sell the thing that allows us to sell the books. But I think what, what's really important is the Amazon is, is a really great example is the, is the fact that Jeff Bezos, right from the very beginning, said everything must be connected through APIs. And so he's creating that decentralization yes. of communications. Well but well as you throw a dart at a dartboard and it lands you know on a three or something i don't know how far we can take this analogy not that far everybody else can learn that what you did didn't work that well yeah i can analyze why it didn't work and is it because you threw it badly is it because you're aiming at the wrong thing is it, is it because we went too early is it because we went too late or if you you know hit a triple 20 oh my god that team over there's just hit a triple 20 what can we learn rather than you know at the end of the year that team gets a massive award from the CEO and everybody else feels a bit bitter. What's interesting, and 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 I think this is still relevant for our conversation today, was the balance between centralization and decentralization. My sense was it was a bunch of people given a bunch of money and told, go on, try and make some money. And there wasn't that connection. So you you painted a picture where every team says, Well, what are you doing? And what are you doing? What can we learn? And how do we take 
the collective value of the business knowledge of the business. And it didn't feel like that. It it actually viscerally at the time felt like But everybody had access to everybody else's data. So even if even if it maybe that's true. Yeah, you know, and, and perhaps perhaps it wasn't a, a starfish organization in the sense of like Wikipedia or or like Alcoholics Anonymous where the people are forming the community perhaps it was a starfish organization where the apis and the data exchange i think i think you're being arguably having participantism is slightly too generous but i think the principle to your point the data was available yeah for the person who wished to do it and and there was an element of you know cast a thousand seeds it was to some degree survival of the fittest in, incidentally, just so people know why this is quite a visceral thing for me, was it was just an obscene amount of money that was being wasted. And the problem I had was I think they were wasting money when they didn't need to waste the money. I mean, at Amazon particularly, I witnessed a number of projects where they spent millions and millions and just went, yeah, that doesn't work, and then threw it away. And yeah. you're like, but, but, but you didn't do a very good job of making it work. Well, uh, I, I think we've we've kind of talked around this quite a lot. I haven't done the book justice in any way. So please go read the starfish and the spider because there's far more to unpack than we've had chance to do. So in the, the hour that we've been discussing it, what I would say though is here are a series of questions on how you can recognize a starfish from a spider. Is there someone in charge with a spider? Yes. It depends on the hierarchy. But the starfish, no, it has a flat structure and it relies on influence rather than control. Are the headquarters spider? Yes. Starfish, no. The location is flexible. If you thump it on the head, will it die? Spider, yes. Take out the headquarters and it dies. Starfish, no. If you take out the leaders, new leaders emerge. Is there a clear division of roles? Spider, yes. It is divided into definite departments. Starfish, no, anyone can do anything. Units are autonomous. If you take out a unit, is the organisation harmed? Spider, yes, every department is important. Starfish, no, a network can rebuild itself. Are knowledge and power concentrated or distributed? Spider, it's centralised. Information and power are concentrated at the top. Starfish, it's distributed. Information and power are dispersed throughout the network. Is the organization flexible or rigid? Spider, it's rigid as a result of their structure. Starfish, it's flexible. The organization is amorphous and fluid, leading to agility, constantly growing, shrinking, mutating, spreading, dying, or re-emerging. Can you count the employees or participants? Spider, yes. Membership is fixed and closed. Starfish, no. Membership is fluid and open. Nobody is able to keep track. Are working groups funded by the organisation or are they self-funding? Spider, they're centrally funded. Without funding, departments quickly die. Starfish, self-funded. Individual units are responsible for obtaining and managing funds. Do working groups communicate directly or through intermediaries? Spider, through intermediaries. Important information is processed through the headquarters. All roads lead to Rome. Starfish, directly between members. No roads lead to Rome. 
because there is no Rome. Now, hopefully from that, you can see both benefits and disadvantages to both spiders and to staffers' organisations. The book makes a very, very clear point that if you want to build a culture and a movement, you need staffish. If you want to build a demagoguery, you need a spider. If you want to build something that is agile enough to move through uncertainty, but be organised enough to meet a strategic goal, then you need a hybrid. Well, I mean, it, it seems to me overly simplifying most organisations need a hybrid or at least be very thoughtful about how to build as much hybrid. And you you said something which I thought was really at the risk of extending the conversation, but was really interesting, which was if you hit it on its head, does it does it die. heal or does it die? A really interesting thought that I hadn't had, which is let's say I was hit by a bus. Would the organisation heal itself or would my team heal itself? And what I mean by that is the answer would be my boss would say, well, so sad. Kitchener didn't make it. Let's go find another Kitchener type person. Yeah. Which is very different from my team saying Chris didn't turn up today. What is it that Chris did? Which of us is going to do that role? Yeah. And that's a very subtle difference. But actually, we, I should build teams and we should all think about teams and say, how can you make it that the day you don't turn up, they aren't waiting for the new Kitchener. They say, when the new Kitchener comes, that's absolutely fantastic. But in the meantime, we'll all huddle and we'll all say, we'll pick that up. We'll wait for the spider head to tell us what they want to do. But in the meantime, we're not going to hang around. I would argue in the military, if the sergeant in the section or the second lieutenant falls into a pit and doesn't get out, there is an understood process that they're not going to wait for the next officer to turn up or sergeant to turn up. They will have talked about this, and this is a this is a conscious thing, perhaps. Maybe not so much in civilian world. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there are definite reasons why at small team level, the military very, very much leans towards starfish. But at the operational level, it's going to be spider. very, very spider. And and of course, as you were as you were just sort of talking there, I was thinking about you know, the fact that we largely and I you know, talking about this book have have largely been espousing the the value of being more starfish. But that's because we are, are battling with business podcasts. We're talking about militaries, we're talking about business organizations that tend to be overly spider i think you could quite easily do a whole episode on why there are attributes of organization that are better than chaos and so there are always going to be economies of scale there are always going to be distributions of effort where you want the people who have the knowledge and the skills and the experience to be doing the jobs rather than just everybody sort of pitching in if everybody thought to pitch in, pitch in to doing budgeting and accounting, you very quickly go bankrupt. This is all about balance. And it's, it's definitely worth reading that book, really thinking about what your organisation looks like now, what it needs to look like to the future, 
and also how you're going to continue to test and adjust because whilst it is a balance, I think you know pretty much everybody will will be nodding away and saying, yeah, that hybrid model seems like the best. It's also going to be a sliding scale and it's going to shift constantly. And I, I think there's a, a term that's kind of cropped up a couple of times in this episode and it's it will continue to crop up in our conversations and that's the idea of emergence and the idea of things appearing out of disorder that seem to have an order to them. And and I think there is a a real need when thinking about volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, VUCA conditions, to really stop and think about where you want to give emergence a chance. Thank you for listening. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, but as I said, there's there's an awful lot more to be taken away from this book. So the book was The Starfish and the Spider, The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organisations by Ori Brathman and Rod A. Betstrom. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. You you know the, the spiel we do at this point, which is uh, let us know what you think. Battling with Biz on X platform, uh, battling with business, two S's at gmail.com. Please uh, let us know what you think. Subscribe. If you have listened to this for the first time, uh, please go back and listen. We've got more than 40 or probably by now 50 episodes. But for now, thank you very much for joining us. And um, we'll speak to you all again soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.